studio in Hollywood history? Yes, of course I did. No, no, never. I mean, um, even in recent history, like I really always saw myself as an independent, as an entrepreneur. I never really thought about joining the studio system um, in any real way. It was always, you know, maybe on the network side, I thought maybe at one point I would go be a buyer and a programmer. That shocks me. That yeah. shocks me that you thought about going to the network side. I, well, for the power. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I thought because... So many times I have a show that I loved and I couldn't get it on TV. So I thought, oh, if I worked right. on the network side, at least I could put it on TV. Um, and I explored it actually with a few with a few cable networks that I liked, I was a fan of. But as I went up the food chain and had those meetings, I realized it's very niche. Right. And I would be buying a very specific type of programming, and then that kind of scared me a little bit. And I spoke to a couple of people who know me well in the business and they were like, you will go nuts because you, I always liked having that range of shows that we could create and produce that if I met a quirky talent and I was like, yeah, let's make this show that I wouldn't be able to do that anymore. And so, um, so then, yeah, that's when I started Barracuda and was just like, great, I'll just, I'll make another company where we can do a broad range of programming. And we did that. And then one day out of the blue, Mark Burnett called, well, it was out of the blue to me. Right. I think he's 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 not he, he's slightly more um, planned and I wouldn't say calculating because it sounds negative, but yes, he knew exactly what he was doing. So had he been kind of waiting for you to maybe be a free agent. He called me and he said, "I believe your funding is coming up with Electus." How does he know this? Because he knows everything. It was really amazing, and I was said he can probably afford to have everybody's phone tapped in this town. <laughs> I think, and he and yeah, so he he's and I was like, I honestly didn't even know when my deal was up. And I was just like, it's no, it's like at least a few months away. And he was like, well, we have this opportunity. And he said, to be honest, you know, we met with a lot of businessmen and a lot of agents and a lot of lawyers who wanted to be president here. And we just felt like we need somebody who knows how to actually make shows. And this is, by the way, no insult to lawyers and agents sure. or, you know, have been fantastic in the process. And it's a different type of relationship with the creative community. Exactly. He said, I don't want someone who could just sell a show. I want somebody who can make sure that we make the show right, that if the, you know, if the showrunner gets hit by the Wilshire bus can step in. Right. And, um, and I think we've seen at other companies where they are run by great salesmen, but they're not great producers. And we've seen lawyers. I don't know who you could be talking about right we've now. We've seen lawyers who sell a show and they get an EP credit, yeah. but they're not making the show. Yeah. And so for this, Mark loves making shows. And by the way, that seems like that's kind of been Mark's model throughout the last few years how he's ran his companies he usually has people that come up through production yes that end up rising through the ranks at his companies not necessarily development people right. definitely not salespeople. he really brings up people that have been in the trenches yep and i think what's also interesting is like when i came up which is you know in the 90s uh which is so long ago but everybody came up through you were either local news or you were daytime talk and you were constantly chasing a story and so you were booking that story for today and then you forgot about it because you were already on to booking the next headline, chasing the next newsmaker. Right. And so it was very disposable. So we all – none of us had ego. Like if you lost a story, you lost it that day, but you were already moving on. <clears throat> and in development, it's so funny because I watch people try to chase something for, for a year yes. and they're focused on that one thing. I'm like, no, we need to have lots of things all going at the same time Yes, because that story may never materialize. And a lot of times it doesn't, or you get the deal done, but then you don't sell the show. Well, you put all your eggs in that one basket. And so I, from an early, you know, I started my company in 94. And, uh, from that point I was like, I always had multiple things going on. I was always chasing multiple well, stories. There's, well, there are a few producers that have worked across as many genres as you have, because you are a showrunner, bona fide showrunner that any network could hire at any point over the last few years to run a broadcast show. But you've also ran your own production company. You've packaged and sold game shows, docs, formats, talk shows, prank shows. Yeah. And now at MGM, what is, what is the charge? Like, what is the gig? 
Well, it's interesting, right? So clearly Mark and the team needs no help with Shark Tank and Survivor and The Voice. And, you know, uh, I'll go to all the tapings. And I'll, I'll be a fan. I'll continue to be a fan. I'm a super fan of Shark Tank. I can tell you everyone who got a deal on that show, like I'm such a junkie of that. I'm going to a taping on the 14th. I can't wait. Wow, you really are a nerd for that show. Oh, I'm such a nerd for that show. I watch it. My kids love it. By the way, my kids negotiate with me, like, can I get this toy? And they'll make a deal. Like we're haggling on Shark Tank. <laughs> like I'm Mr. Wonderful and they want the toy. But I love it because it's it's a, I love that show. My wife loves The Voice, but so those shows they don't need anything from me, you know, all support and 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 service as needed. But th- those are up and running. My real focus is growing the business in cable, in digital, mm. on these other platforms. Who knows? Groupon's going to have a network tomorrow, or whoever else <laughs> is like coming up with a network. So Yelp, really, Yelp original programming. <laughs> Yelp, we're doing a scripted series for Yelp. Uh, no, but right, figuring out. How how we can grow the business in a um, in a se- in a large segment of the business that hasn't been the Mark Burnett you know model like he hasn't been chasing those because um, he's made big big shows and those right. you know and so so those are those are a different type of production model which is obviously what I built both my companies on was the quantity over quality you right. know so now he's like all right well let's make sure we have quality but let's still let's still play it by the numbers but because a, we, go ahead but a big company like MGM it's not about usually expertise and the inability to produce a cable show it's usually the haggling over rights yep. And retaining distribution rights internationally, and a lot of people don't realize this, and it really is completely backwards. Yes. Because the broadcast networks who will pay you, you know, right. a million an episode, yes. they give you the best deals. I know. And they pay you the most. Right. And then networks, I'm just gonna throw out like, yeah. you know, lifetime. Right. Maybe give you something in the three hundred thousand right. range in episode, and you own nothing. Yes, and you may or may never see any back end. Right. And usually the major global distributors, and I, you know, I have a production company in all three. Yeah. We run into the same thing. Yeah. So with MGM, is Mark and the MGM leadership now willing to go by you know cable deals, well, or do you have to retain everything? Well, I'm only two weeks into my job, <laughs> so I would I have asked say, this in the interview, yes. Mary. So well, no, I think look, the, we're we're inching there. I think because MGM is a major studio, yeah. Um, when a network also wants to have James Bond and Creed and uh, other movies. So we have some leverage right. that, that as an independent, we don't have. That's so we haven't used it yet, but I think there's bigger deals to be had. And I think that's where Mark and, and Gary Barber, who's the chairman, are going to be pivotal and figuring out we're not nickel and diming over this one show. We want to create a template with all the A&E networks so that when we come in, you already know what we want. Right, right now, we're only talking about creative and then we'll just plug in the title of the show and we move on. Right. And so that's our that's our dream. Um, and and if, two things you guys have that people don't is you have Mark Burnett. <laughs> he usually gets the deal he wants. Yes. And number two, it's like I tell everybody else, if you have more than one offer, yeah. you're going to retain international. Right. If and, you don't, you're right. probably not. And and I will say this also, Mark is not afraid to walk away from a deal. Right. And I think it's something that we don't have, right? As not being Mark Burnett, you're always right. like, I got I to gotta fan the flames of this. I got to fa- – so Absolutely. you end up compromising. And I have to say though, on many shows where I didn't retain the foreign mm-hmm. um, that went – Five, six, seven, eight, nine seasons. They were still great. Oh, absolutely. So, so there's, oh. there's the greed part of us that wants it all, but oh, yeah. it's also there are places like True TV. Well, back, back in the day, even Court TV to True yeah. TV, there's places where I did great. I didn't have great deals, but I had long running shows, and so that makes up for Look it. Look at companies like Sharp Entertainment that yeah. were doing Man vs. Food and really building their company through Travel Channel. Right. They probably didn't retain anything, right. but they built themselves into a company that later sold. Yeah. And they became huge. Yep. Same with the companies that are doing like House Hunters. Yep. Yeah. You know, oh, they how don't nice own, to get an, yeah. an order, a season order, a hundred episodes. I, I know. I'm so jealous. But so, yeah, I think I think our charge with with the sort of um, – the, the mandate for us is to still figure out what are great shows. What, how are we telling a story that's not derivative because that's a big – uh, mandate both on the feature side, on the scripted side. You know, MGM has Vikings on history, Teen Wolf on MTV. Right. Their, their scripted business is really big. And they've got In the Still of the Night in development, yep. Showtime. Yep. They, awesome. They, they have so many epic, epic, yeah. you know, so epic scripted shows. They have amazing movies. So we have to make sure that the bar for reality doesn't drop off. Um where it goes, that's an M, you know, that's an MGM show. Um, so we still have to be creative in our storytelling. We still have to be epic. Um, we still need to be original, but we also still need to be current. And part of being current in the unscripted world is being 
crafty and creative in how you're you're getting the story out there. I think you know we have two new shows at MTV that are both cool and gritty and edgy, and you know I think it'd be really great for MTV. Um, well, I want to start from the early parts of your okay, career. Great. I want to go back. How did you get into the first gig? How did you arrive at your first gig? Because the first one's always the hardest. Yes. So was it a PA job? What was it? So ironically, um, so there's two parts of this story. Ironically, I just ran into one of my first bosses upstairs at Real Screen. My first job was an internship, and it was for a show called Attitudes, and it was two women hosting a show. It was Linda Dano and Nancy Glass. Okay. And they were exactly how like two silly catty women would be. Like they were great friends. Linda Dano was a soap star, and Nancy was a was a news anchor. Um, and they paired them together, and it was really funny and so i got an internship there and it was kind of like i rolled my eyes like really i'm interning on this chick show it's like hoda and kathy lee it, yes it was it was like that but in 1988 <laughs> yes. or 89 so um and snl was spoofing them at the time it was jan hooks and nora dunn would play them and it was so funny awesome. but so i was like i was an intern there i literally would go get a half a grapefruit for linda dano um, and I would need to, because of the delis in New York, would always put a half a cherry on the top of the grapefruit. She didn't want the cherry, so they would have to cut it fresh. Uh, you know, so I, I, I was the best goddamn intern. I was like, <laughs> I was first one in, last one out. Like the EP of the show, I remember being like, are you still here? And I was like, I just want to make sure. I, I was such a nerd for TV. I loved it. I, always. Were I you would, always like that? Yes. I, I would stand in the studio and I would watch from the sides. I was so excited. Also the Cosby show taped in the same building. No way. So, and, and so did Sesame Street. So I would see Big Bird and Bill Cosby every day amazing i don't know what happened between the two and, of them yeah. <laughs> so it was so it was a really fun first experience and i was like i drank the kool-aid i was like this is it and so while i was in college i was also videotaping weddings and bar mitzvahs on the weekend and so that was like my job so i was like i was that kind of geek and the guy who owned the company the the wedding video company said to me one day you know my friend when i was graduating he said my friend um produces sally jesse Raphael. you should go meet him Wow. So I went and met Bert Dubrow, and um, the best part was I met Bert, and we were talking. He's like, I don't really have anything, kid. You know, you seem like a good kid, but I don't have anything. And I was like, oh, I said, that's okay. I said, well, I have a meeting tomorrow with Gelman over at Regis and Kathy Lee. Um, and he goes, what? And I said, yeah, my mom and Gelman's mom kind of know each other, and so I got this meeting. And he goes, well, then you're hired. What? I was like, what? He goes, he yeah, got, yeah, yeah. He got, can, he got competitive over a PA. Isn't that amazing? And so I was just like, okay. And it, it, it honestly changed the course of my life because I got that job at Sally Jesse. And again, it was like this female skewing daytime show where it wasn't, I was not the target audience at all, but I just, I, and this is pre-internet, pre all the technology we have. Wow. And we would have to chase down stories. And I loved it. We would read, we would read about something in the paper outrageous you know now there's like a school teacher having sex with a kid every day but back then it was like we would have to get that school teacher get her on a plane get her to sit down with sally we were chasing headlines we would do a lot of celebrity stuff um you know where we'd have like brooke shields on for an hour with her classmates from college and her mom and whatever and so everything just became like an event and a spectacle which is how do we get bigger and bigger and so it was really fun and at the time by the way you know we were we were rating nines and tens in right. daytime it yeah, was crazy right. yeah. sally was crushing it and it was amazing and so i worked my way up there a little bit and then got to go um i took a little left turn i went to produce christina saraleggi's uh english-speaking show in miami so christina's christina's like the oprah of mexico huge, oh, okay okay huge 100 million viewers a day seriously seriously so still no she's off the air now. at the time so at the time she had 100 million viewers a day um uh, uh, CBS was doing a, a syndicated show with her for daytime. So they called me up and they were like, would you come do this? So I was like, yeah. So you rose through the ranks pretty quickly. Very, I got, yes. Because again, um, I had a good reputation because I worked really, really, really hard. From that, I got the opportunity to go do Christina's show, which was amazing. And I had the best time and it was really fun. But that only lasted about eight months. Okay. <clears throat> and right before that got canceled, before it was like we were on, by the way, we were doing like a 5.6 and got canceled. Like it's crazy. <laughs> right. But but um but then I got the the call that really did change the course of my life, which was the Joan Rivers show. Right, and you and later ended up doing three other shows with Joan. Yeah, I worked with Joan. Um, you did know, Joan and, and Melissa. You did. How did you get so rich? And yeah. how long were you on the Joan Rivers show? The Joan Rivers show, probably maybe two years. And was you know? that like a, a a daytime one woman Regis and yeah Kelly kind of thing? Yeah, it was like an Ellen. 
It was oh. like what Ellen does okay. now. Got it was it. it was gossip and fashion and celebrities. You know, every show had started with gossip. It was like her hot topics. We would do the gossip, and she would always have a different gossip columnist there, and it was really fun. And it would be AJ Benza or Linda Stacy or Sam Rubin or all that. We would have right. a different person every day, Cindy Adams, and she always loved that part of the show because she would just get to sit and listen to the gossip and react and make jokes about these people. And were you already an admirer? Of her stand-up and her career, or did this turn you into a, a Joan person for life? No, so at that point, like I said, like Attitudes and Sally Jesse and Christina were all people that I barely knew. Joan Rivers, you have to understand, my mom's name is Joan. My mom's also from Brooklyn. My mom, um, when I was growing up, anytime Joan Rivers was guest hosting The Tonight Show, I could stay up late and watch wow. it. Wow. Like, Joan made my family laugh. Huh. So the idea that I was getting to produce her show was like, holy shit, are you kidding me? And... Um, and mind you, at this point, I was still maybe 23 or 24. That like, I was young, really – it all was going really fast. But I was um, – so I remember my first meeting with Joan when I had to do my first show. And um, the way it worked with Joan, you would go into the briefing. You would have your celebrity guest, and you would have 100 questions written for them, 100. Okay. okay. And then you would read her the 100 questions. She would have a copy, and you'd go down it, and she would highlight the ones that she liked, and that's what we put on cards. And um, I had some other funny ideas. That I thought as my 23, 24-year-old self, like, this will be great. Joan will do this. And she's like, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. She was nixing a bunch of stuff, and I was, like, dying. This is, like, your first experience in a comedy room. Yes. Where that's the norm. Yes. You get shot down. And her hairdresser and her assistant and her makeup artist, and they're all there, you know, doing the thing. So you have a full audience. Yeah. Like, kind of all watching me. Bomb. What I feel like is bombing. But right. you're going through 100 questions. But it's standard practice. Right. So some of them have to get killed. Yeah. You're not going to ask 100 but questions. But for you, like like the overachieving 23-year-old, yes. this is devastating. I was getting graded. Like yeah. I thought I was going to go in there and she was like, I can't choose. They're all so good. <laughs> so anyway, then she kills one bit that I had put on the list. And I said, I said, I don't think we should kill that. This was like around number – Do you remember the bit? Uh, yeah, I remember. You do remember? Yeah. Well, yeah, tell me what was the bet. Um, well, this was basically – okay, it's so stupid. But So we were doing a show with um, celebrity lookalikes caught in scandals. And so the premise was I look like Roseanne. Roseanne had just sang the national anthem back right. then. And it was horrible. So this woman would, couldn't go to the supermarket because she looked so much like Roseanne. Oh. People were cursing her out. And then we had Burt and Lonnie lookalikes. Okay. Burt Reynolds and Lonnie Anderson at the time were going through this terrible divorce. And these two couldn't go so out. So they were paying for the actual scandals of the real celebrities right. when they were out in when society. When they were innocent people. And so we had a really fun range. So I said, Joan, we arranged for um, Bob Mackey. Cher's designer to send you one of her famous dresses. It was like one of these see-through sort of, you know, not really right. see-through. But be, and we got you a Cher wig, and we're going to do the same. We're going to make you look like Cher. And at the time, Cher scandal was she was dating like that bagel boy or something, whatever it yeah. was. But it was topical to the thing. And Joan goes, I'm going to look stupid. This isn't going to work. I'm not, I'm not Cher. I'm not hot. I don't have her body. This is. And by the way, at the time, Joan was a size zero. I mean, she was never heavy, but yeah. she was so skinny at this time. And I said, Joan, I'm just telling you, I really think you need to do this. I just, but I, and she. And this is your first encounter with her. So she said, uh, and she used to wear these little reading glasses. And she took her reading glasses off, and she's just in a bathrobe. And her whole team is like looking at me, like giving me eyes, like, dude. So she said, okay, I'll do this. But if it doesn't work, today is your last day. Holy cow. And I. Welcome to television. Right? Without. Without even a hesitation, I said, okay, because I figured it's already kind of my last day because this is not going well. So I was like, I might as well take a shot. So, um, so she had to respect your balls at that point. I think so. And so then she, you know, so we, we started the show normal and everything and she's doing the interviews. And then she was like, when we come back, we have a special guest. Cher is going to be here whatever. And then she goes off and we do the makeover. And so I said to the audience, warm up. This woman, Hester, who's fantastic. I said, Hester, I need the mic for a second. So I said to the audience, I said, look, we're doing something really special. Joan's coming out. She's a little bit nervous about it. Just um, just if you think it's a little bit funny, laugh a lot. If you think it's really funny, like stand up and go crazy. But just make sure you show her some love. Because I was like, at this point now, I was a little nervous. Is that I gotta cheating? Stack the deck. Is, that, is that cheating? I think it's a little cheating, but don't we all? So I said, uh, so I said um, all right, so then – uh, she came out and the place went, she looked great. The place right. went nuts. It ended up being a full picture, a full page photo in people magazine. Like it, because back then this is pre-internet and all that right. stuff. So like people magazine was our barometer of if we made it. Um, and it was, it was um, the place went nuts. So like I goose them a little bit, but it really right. worked. And she's out there like share, like, Oh, you know, with the tongue <laughs> and the hair, she's loving it now. Everyone's like, and then I just, she just looks over at me and winks. And I was like, 
That was it. It was like Carson uh, calling a comic right. over to the couch. That's what it was like. She was like – and so from that day on, pretty much anything – not anything I suggested, but pretty much she would always hear an idea, and then we would tweak it together, and there was maybe only one other time – when we were doing How'd You Get So Rich and we were in, you know, the premise of that show was we would knock on the doors of these mega mansions and go inside and um, find out how the fuck they got so rich. And so we're in this guy's house and he had a 24 karat gold bathroom. Everything in the bathroom was 24 karat gold. It was insane. And so I gave Joan a joke to say, oh, so this is what they mean when they say golden shower. And Joan goes, nobody wants to hear a 78-year-old woman say golden shower, Barry. And so I said, okay, okay, so don't do it. And um, then we're rolling, the, the, we're rolling in it, and so she, the owner's showing her around, and then she goes, so this is what they mean when they, they say golden shower. Everyone's at, literally the cameraman, like the camera was, the guy's shaking. We had to redo the – and then she was like, you were right. But it was like she – there were certain things as she got older that she felt maybe weren't appropriate, and so she was a little bit more nervous about. Right. But um, no, it was always – it was always an adventure. It was always fun. Um, How, he, he, even the times when she would get – mad about stuff she was um our temperaments were very similar we'd flare up and go down like right. it was just like i'm the same way t- today with my kids they piss me off i'm like get it go in your room and then i go into minutes later i'm like hey sorry i raised my voice shouldn't have done that you shouldn't yell at people i shouldn't yell at people so joan was that same way and that's why i always found it so funny when there would be like these feuds of people who hate joan or whatever because behind closed doors she's laughing like shannon dowardy hates me who cares like what is well, she talking about? well i'm glad you brought that up because i wanted to get to when chelsea handler and her oh had a public beef yes. because you also yes. were instrumental in launching Chelsea Handler's career yes. because you executive produced Girls Behaving Badly. Yes. So when Chelsea and Joan had their public, yes. I don't know what you would call it, exchange of words, yes. and it was basically stemming from Chelsea not showing enough respect for the trail that Joan blazed for female comedians, right? That was kind of at the center of it, right? I think it was that, and I think it was also Chelsea had made a joke about Melissa. Oh, okay. And I and look, Chelsea's fantastic. So so I was really lucky to work with Joan all those years. And then um and then I knew comedy was my thing. Right. I, that's I loved it. Not that I'm a comic. I never want to be a stand-up comic. I love being around comics. Right. I love being I love whispering stuff in their ear and seeing it come out their mouth and watching the crowd laugh. Like it was great. And I loved also um some people like Joan or Jeff Foxworthy or or you know Cedric or people who were like um had their brand of comedy so well established before I ever met them right. and be able to help take them um, in a new direction. And I love that. But then also people like Chelsea, when we launched, when we launched girls Baby badly was a struggling standup who we saw a VHS tape that was dropped off at our office of her doing standup, wearing a um, sweater set, like a cardigan sweater with a matching sweater underneath it and pearls. And her whole bit was like, Oh, I'm the, I look like this clean cut girl, but I'm really have a filthy mouth. You know, I'm really crazy. Anyway, I, we saw her stand John Stevens and I were, I remember being in our office at on sunset across from the body shop. We had this shitty little production office. And I remember watching that tape and we had already cast girls behaving badly. The cast oh, was done. It was already set up at E. At no, it was set up at Oxygen. At Oxygen. And, and did you and John create it yourself? We created it. Honestly, it was also funny. Like we were like we were going to pitch Oxygen. We we're like, what are we going to bring them? At the, they just launched, and they had like all these shows, like The Beehive, where it was a bunch of women sitting around, like talking about what men won't tell you. And it was just like it was so, uh, it was just so nothing that any woman I knew would watch. My sister wouldn't watch it. My mother wouldn't watch it. My girlfriend wouldn't watch it. So I was like, what can we bring them? And I was like, I don't know. Everyone loves sex in the city. Like all these women, they love sex in the city at the time. And then we love jackass huh. on MTV. So then we were like, let's put them together. Let's make a show about girls who are like a group of girls like sex in the city, but they do crazy things. Right. And so that evolved into girls behaving badly. And we had cast the show. Then we saw Chelsea's tape. I remember Susan Haber was her agent at the time. Okay. And Susan Haber sent the tape over. And I remember calling Susan. She was like, there's one more person you have to see. And we saw it, and we were like, game changer, have to add her. And we added her to the cast. And, you know, I mean, I think the show would have been successful anyway. Um, as a format. As a format. As, as an ensemble. Think, and the cast was really good. It was Chandrella and Melissa and, and um, Kira. And it was a really great group. But Chelsea broke through. Did I mean, you she, know from when you first sat down yeah. with her that she – From the first time she told me to fuck off? Yes, I knew. That she was going to be a success? <laughs> Huge. Huge. You know why? Because anything – her and – the whole group, but anything we wrote for them – when you write a prank, right, you're, you're sort of playing part psychologist. Like what would an innocent, unsuspecting person do right. when someone says this? And so we'd write – you could write half the script, but you didn't know what the real person was going to do. Right. But any situation we would put Chelsea in, she made it one better she, or ten better. I mean it would be like 
sometimes she would say, like, as we got on in seasons, because I think we did five or six seasons of that show, there was one time we were shooting in Westwood, and she goes, oh, let me just do this bit. Like, we were shooting something at a nail salon, or, and she just goes, let me just go on the street. And she went on the street, and she just sat in a trash can, like, put her ass in the trash can, so her legs were over the front, and she was, like, kind of leaning back. Like, you'd be reclining, like, in a, in a floaty in the right, pool or right, something. Right. But she was dressed totally normal, like, just, you know, like a pretty – and then people would walk by, she'd be like – can you help me? And people would be like, what? She goes, I don't know. A gust of wind just came and blew me in here or whatever. <laughs> like the dumbest things. And someone else, she'd be like, I'm stuck in this toilet. Can you help me? And people are like, that's not a toilet. You're in a-. Like she just was rattling off one-liners. So we had a great time. And there was – there. so from working with Chelsea at that point – and by the way, we even had Joan and Melissa guest star on Girls Behaving Badly at one point to do a prank together wow. with our cast, which was amazing. It was a Joan shoplifting prank where Melissa – Joan gets – Joan the, – the Mark sees Joan shoplift. And then has to tell Melissa what happened. It was great. I mean, these people were crying. They all covered for Joan. It was just funny. When you, we, we were sort of testing because OJ had gotten off with murder at this point and in, in history. And, and Winona Ryder had gotten busted for shoplifting. Right. And we were like, what would happen if an icon like Joan was shoplifting? Everybody – well, I should actually say um, there were three white guys that all covered for her. And then there was one African-American guy who was like, call the cops. Bitch stole the shit. I am not, I know how this, because we were shooting in Beverly Hills. He's like, I know how this is going to, and so it was great, but it was a real social commentary. And the show was really funny, but it was really like, what can girls get away with that guys can and vice versa. And so it was all interesting, but from, but from Chelsea, from, from day one, we knew she was going to be a breakout. And so when she and Joan had their, their Twitter war, um, I, felt badly because I don't think Joan cared as much as like Chelsea. Like I think Chelsea made a joke about Melissa and, and, and like comedians are allowed to make jokes. Right. It bothered Joan. And then it just kind of spiraled. Cause they were both at E at the time. Chelsea was dating the president or living with him. I think at that point. So, and Joan here, she is like this, you know, senior citizen and like, what the fuck? So, she, so the claws come both, out. Both on the same network. On the same network. Joan's doing Fashion Police. Yeah. And Chelsea's doing Chelsea And Lately. Joan's no dummy. She, she really, like, beyond no dummy. She's one of the smartest people I know. And in fact, going back like 20 years earlier, we had a show set up at ABC Daytime. Okay. It was replacing it back then. ABC Daytime had like the home show and all these kinds of shows, and they wanted a new show. And they were, and so we sold them a show called Free Advice, where Joan and other experts give free advice to people, right? But ABC was also developing this other show with Barbara Walters. So Joan pulled me aside and she said, Barry, we should just throw in the towel now. Like Barbara Walters, she's like, she is ABC. They might as well fucking call it the Barbara Walters Network, her specials, her 2020, or all this. Like they're never going to pick me over her. And because at this point now, Joan's own daytime ca- daytime show had you know she'd won the Emmy for it and all that, right. but it had been canceled. And her Tonight Show had been canceled, and she had already done Hollywood Squares as the center square. And like so, it was, she was sort of feeling like nobody wants me. Although her QVC business was huge, right? So even though she loved the show and everything, it's like they came back. That we we were talking about the pilot, and then Joan said, "Let's tap out." Wow, because she didn't want to lose. And I thought it's really interesting because she's such a fighter and so determined, but she's also smart. And she wants to hedge her bet. And she was like, I'd rather use that time and energy for us to do something that's actually going to get on the air. So it was great. So the same thing with Chelsea. I think she realized this is interesting. This girl's sleeping with my boss. So I have to handle this carefully. But the more Chelsea attacked her, Joan was you know, funny and would fight back. And Joan's always been a fighter. And, um, and, and you know. You, you were telling me uh, off the mic that it was her birthday yesterday. Yes, it was her birthday. Yeah. And so um, I saw one of my old friends, Phoebe Tisdale, who's over at Fox now, but Phoebe was our, our travel coordinator on the Joan River show. So I saw her yesterday, and Andy Krasny um, was one of Joan's writers and, and close friends. And so um, Sabrina. So anyway, but it's a really tight knit group wow. because there was, look, Joan's inner circle was huge. And she was extremely loyal. Loyal and generous, when so generous. It, when she heard that my mom had had breast cancer a few years ago, within two seconds of hearing it, she called my mom. Wow. How are you, Joni? What's up? Beat this cancer shit. Let's go. Like she, she, I don't know how she got it all done. And so what was interesting was while she was alive, everybody in the inner circle was sort of jealous of each other. You know, oh, Joan went to dinner with you. And it was very funny. But once she died, I have to say, we all came together. I remember being in New York. Melissa was amazing um, in that she called me a couple of days before Joan passed and mm. said, I think you should come see her. Mm. Um, and so that was another whole experience of going into the room. And um, they had her all glammed up. <clears throat> and um, they brought 
Joan had an amazing art collection. They brought art from her house and put it in the room. And they were playing show tunes. When I walked in, it was Oklahoma, oh. <laughs> where the window, whatever. Like the show tunes are playing, and there was one um, security guard in the room and one nurse in the room, and I couldn't walk in. Yeah, I couldn't. I was like frozen at the door. And Amy Rosenblum, who was one of her good friends and a producer, said, I'm going in with you. Let's go. Joan wants to see you, whatever. And I went there, and so she said to Joan, who's on a breathing apparatus and everything, Joan, Barry's here. Um, and she takes Joan's essentially dead hand and puts it in my hand. And she goes, talk to her. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I was like, here it was all these years of laughing yeah. and traveling the country and doing just funny, crazy shit. And I was, I just, it still, honestly, obviously chokes me up. It was so, um, it was so hard for me to, to get through. And, um, uh, but it was an amazing um, experience because after that, there was, of course, Jones, the only person in a hospital that also had a green room next door. I'm not joking. <laughs> Melissa had this entire, Melissa and Sabrina and Jocelyn and Graham and the whole team that worked with Jones had a green, another hospital room set up that had like, um, snacks and seating area and so i went in there and it was like it was like this is your life joan rivers it was all of her old friends from the tonight show days on up and it's like sue cameron and all these people that i had gotten to see and we just all started hugging each other and we went to lunch and it reconnected everybody because up until then we were all vying to get time with joan right um at different times because she would come out to by the way also that was another thing joan could fly 24 hours – like she would fly to a city, do a show, get she back on a plane, She was working her butt off until the very end. She yeah. was doing gigs I mean, and the doc- on the weekends yep. and then flying back to do fashion police. My wife was working on fashion yeah. police at the time, and yep. she would just tell me stories about how busy Joan was. And there was uh, – did you see her Louie episode? Yes. It's amazing. So good. If you have not seen the Joan Rivers episode of Louie, go on Netflix right now and check it out. It's well, unbelievable. Well, what a lot of people don't know is also Joan really was a great actress. She yeah. really – she wanted to be a comic, but secretly she would have loved to have had that one role that got her the respect as an actress because she trained as an actress. She was so good. Like even even doing any of the, the crappy shows that we did together where um, – like it was funny on the daytime show one time she did – they did a past life regression. This guy mm. – um, I forget his name – from Miami. He was like a famous past life regressionist and he, he would put you sort of into the hypnosis state and then you would start remembering all these previous lives you had in it. So we, I remember shooting the whole thing. We shot it in this hotel room. Um, we shot it at the Plaza Hotel and he regressed Joan and she's laying on the couch and does this whole thing and she's crying and she's talking about being like a wench and a guillotine and the whole thing and there's tears coming down. And, the whole, and anyway, so we finish and we wrap and he leaves and the, the cameras are still packing up and she just sits up and she goes, was that good? And we were like, <laughs> What? And then in, I remember like it was yesterday. And then she goes, clean out the mini bar and let's get out of here. <laughs> it's like we took all the crap and we were – but she was just oh, – and I was like, oh my god. Like I was like, I can't believe you just made all that up. And the documentary that was made about her, it, the, basically the gist of it was that she had to have a filled schedule yeah. all the time. She had to always be working. And was that because she just wanted to make sure that she was going to provide – for her entire family well after I she think, was gone? I think not even just her family. There was She was so generous to so many people. But it wasn't even just about money, although she loved it. Look, the only thing she loved more than making money was spending money. That woman could shop. I never saw, <laughs> I didn't know you could buy a pair of pants for $5,000. Like I saw this woman go to, into a, a Chanel and just like – and also, by the way, one of the other things that's funny, like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, she would never buy one of something. Like if she's like, – really? like there were these black tuxedo pants – she would buy 10 of them because she knew that she was going to wear them all the time. Like she's, she's so extravagant but also very generous. But her time wasn't always filled with making money. Like she would do so much charity, so much goodwill. Mm. You, would, you have no idea. And so like to the point where um, you know, it was just uh, – I think she didn't want to be alone. Who does, right? And so she had this big grand home. She had a great house in the country. But – but she didn't want to be alone. So even if she wasn't working, she always had friends around. She right. always she traveled so much, and she, she anyway she was she was amazing. And that that um, you know I remember also how it all sort of comes together because Mark Burnett called me into his office five or six years ago and said, um, Joan, you know we we um, we offered Joan to be on Celebrity Apprentice, and, oh. and her agent came back and said that you know they would like us to have Melissa on as well. What do you think? And I said, to be honest, I know it's only gonna, di- it's only going to give you a better story, right? People have different opinions about Melissa. Like she, Melissa's a great producer. Melissa's so smart. Both her parents are so smart. She got it from both of them. So creative. I said that will be 
brilliant television. Yeah, because it'll either work to their advantage where they'll be cunning and outsmart everybody because they're both so shrewd. And when one of them <laughs> gets eliminated. Exactly, once you have that elimination. So I had no idea it was going to be as good as it was. And Joan won. Joan won. It was amazing. I was there that night. It, it, was, it was like she felt like she was voted prom queen. Like she couldn't believe it because, you know, it was, it was, really, it was really, really fun. And I – She um, never stopped viewing herself as the underdog that had to overachieve yeah. and that people were always doubting her. Yeah. Right? And by the way, I think she believed that once you weren't the underdog, you were, you were setting yourself up for failure. Right. Once you believe your own bullshit – um, and it was funny, by the way, even so after she won The Apprentice, again, a Mark Burnett story, but Mark Burnett had this Christmas, has a Christmas party that's um, pretty awesome. My wife and I went, and Joan and Melissa were there, and it's like a who's who of Malibu. It's the crazy – it's Barbara Streisand and I was going to say Barbara Streisand, and, yeah. And, I mean, it's everybody. It's crazy. And those are all his friends. But so Joan, who is in these circles, is like a little bit insecure. She's like, stay with me. Stay right. with me. right. Like she does it. It's so funny. And so I'm funny. like, no, Joan, you're one of them. She is like, she's like the Tom Brady of comedy. Yeah. <laughs> like Tom Brady got drafted in the sixth round and he still has that chip on his shoulder. Yes. So he outworks everybody, right. outworks everybody. And it comes still. off like a chip on his shoulder. And he still views himself yeah. as the slow footed guy at the combine that all right. these people passed on. And I think Joan kind of looked at herself that way. Yes. So she outworked everybody yeah. and put together a hall of fame career. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those stories yes. about Joan. I want to, I want to go to the zoo days. Yes. When did, when did you team up with John? When did that company launch? So, it, it, so I started Zoo like um, legally or you know incorporated in like ninety four in okay. nineteen ninety four. And at that point, I had a development deal at Buena Vista, and we were developing some shows there. But I hadn't met John yet. And then I sold a show to MTV called The Blame Game, which mm-hmm. was like a dating a breakup court for okay. a team, and it was inspired by this improv Olympic troupe. Again, that we that I, I back to comedy. I saw them at the. Um, I think it was the the UCB. Uh, no, but I, they were from Improv Olympic. But it was either the Aspen Comedy Festival or the Montreal Comedy okay. Festival. But they they had a huge budge buzz, and so I was like, I want to be in business with them. And John Landis also wants to be in business with them. Well, so who do you think they they pick? <laughs> so they picked John Landis. Um, but luckily, John Landis's company didn't know what to do with them. John Landis, by the way, Blues Brothers, Animal House, yeah. the Michael Jackson thriller video, yeah. coming to America. Yes, yeah, one of the greats. So I get a call. After losing out to John Landis. Actually, John Landis thinks that you guys should do this together. I was Come like, on. oh, my God. So I went and met with him, and I was like, here's my idea. Uh, because that troupe had a show that they did a live stage show called Su- Sue Your Ex. And they would pull someone from the audience, and they would say, tell us the story of a breakup you've been through. And the person would go through the breakup, and they'd say, all right, if we put that on trial, let's see who's to blame. So that was the bit that they did live. And so we were like, oh, let's turn this into, like, the anti-dating show. It was, it was the anti-Singled Out because Singled Out was right. big for Anyway, so we do the whole thing. John Landis is like, you guys are fucking hilarious. The, kid, the group was great. Jason Weiner, by the way, who was the male attorney on it, who now does, you know, yeah. di- di- directed Modern Family and Life in Pieces and, like, amazing Arthur he did the remake of. But there's a lot of talented people on that show. And then ultimately John Landis – we sold it to MTV. We couldn't make a deal that was rich enough for John Landis. And in an amazingly classy move, John Landis said, I'll tap out. Go do the show without me. And it was amazing. And so we did the show. We he did 130 or 40. He didn't need an MTV show at yes. that time. But it was – But was good of him not to kill the deal for everybody. Great of him not to kill the deal. And also I think having his blessing of like a comedy god going, this show right. is good, helped us at MTV. By the way, the only time I ever broke out of assistant mode – when I worked for Ben Silverman when he was the chairman of NBC. You know, because you have to be kind of a robot right. on the phone. And, care. and you've got people like Trump calling every day, and, <laughs> and Seinfeld called when we did the marriage ref. Tina Fey would call. Lauren Michaels, my hero. I'm answering the phone for all these people. And the only time I broke uh, out of, of uh, right. total assistant robo mode was when John Landis calls out of the blue. And he calls and he's like, hey, it's John Landis for Ben. And I go, John Landis? <laughs> And he's like – and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Landis. Uh, let me see if I can get him. And I put him on hold, and I can't get Ben. So I come back, and I've kind of like tried to compose myself. And I go, I'm sorry, Mr. Landis. I couldn't get Ben. Uh, I'll, I'll tell him that you called. I'll take your number. And he, he now is freaked out by the person <laughs> on the other end of the phone. So he's talking to me very slowly. He's like, okay, my number is <laughs> – Three one oh, like it's completely name. botched. Wait, it. let's give out his phone number. What Comple- was? It? Yeah, completely, <laughs> completely botched it on right. that call. He's no, he. It was great, and so three amigos too. I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So he. Um, so anyway, so getting that show on MTV, I got. So we got it sold to MTV. So MTV picked it up. So I um, officially um, 
left my deal at Buena Vista because I had, like, I think, a two-year deal. So I was out. I'm like, I'm going to produce an MTV show. Woohoo! What I didn't know, because at this point, mind you, I'm still in my 20s. Right? Right. I, I, still don't, I, I think I know everything, but I really don't. Right. And so MTV is like, great. So let's put together a calendar or whatever. So I get the calendar, and we don't start shooting for six months. I was like, wait, what? I thought, you, I thought we start like tomorrow. How do you pay your bills? So I was like, oh, my God, this is weird. And, and I'm also a little bit of a workaholic, which is why Jonah and I also got it. Like it was just right. – there's a hustle in yeah. a certain – you know. so I um, call – I was like, I need a job. And so Kathy Chermel, again, the woman who I referenced that I spoke to yesterday, Kathy Chermel, who's a producer at Sally Jesse with me, I was telling her, I'm like, I can't believe this. I left Buena Vista. I thought I was going to do this. So she said, well, you know, my friend David Goldberg oversees Extra. Maybe they need some like sweeps you know, month help or whatever. So I went over there and I met him and he was, and he's like, pitch me some ideas. And I, to this day, I remember my pitches. They were all like completely sweeps over the top. Probably wouldn't even seem that promiscuous by today's standards. But right. back then they were like crazy naughty. Cause extra was transitioning from celebrity to like uh, more magazine-y investigation. Okay. So it was like, like um, swinger parties in the OC and like a vaginal rejuvenation is the new <laughs> nose job and like all these different things. And so, um, so they were like, great, you're hired. And so I started in sweeps and I remembered that, you know, it was set up like a huge newsroom and I go to my, my little cubicle and, um, I mean, there's probably a hundred employees in the newsroom. And, um, so then I started pitching some investigation, like hidden camera investigation stories. And they were like, you need to talk to John Stevens about that. He does all our hidden, hidden camera investigations. So I remember leaving this guy, John Stevens, like a message. I'm like, hey, I got this one, but nothing back. Oh, a rental car scandal. Nope, nothing. No, I would never get a call back. And then, um, and then there was another producer, Terry Coyle, who worked there, who I remember saying to her, like, this John Stevens seems like a real jerk. He's not returning my calls. And she's like, no, doll, babe, he's great. He's great. And I was like, whatever. And so that's it. So I didn't know who this guy was. So one night I'm in an edit bay editing a story on – there was a magazine, Perfect 10, that was like a, yeah, like a classy a, version of Playboy. Was it classy? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm saying – Was it classier? So they, they, they had the Perfect 10 pageant was one of the, my sweep stories. Oh, that was, it was a topless beauty pageant. It was perfect. So we, were, so we went out and we shot the story and the whole thing. And so we're in the edit bay editing it, and there's like you know 10 monitors with tits on every monitor. And so – this guy walks by and he looks in. And he's like, "Hey, what are you working on?" So I was like, "Oh, it's the Perfect Ten pageant." And he's like, "Oh," and I said, uh, "I'm Barry Posnick." And he goes, "Oh," like that. And I go, "What?" He goes, "I'm John Stevens." And I was like, "Ah, I haven't been calling you back." So I said, "Yeah, I've been leaving you some messages." By the way, if you ever want to get John Stevens to show up, like the bat signal, just put a bunch of boobs up on the screen, and he will just show up. So I was like, I said, oh, he goes, he was no offense, man. Like, I got a million ideas. Like, I don't need random segment ideas from other people. And I was like, oh, okay, no problem. Like, I won't pitch you anymore. And uh, and we bonded over that. And so I stayed at Extra for a little bit and then went to do the, the MTV show, and it was great. And then in success at MTV, started doing um, Spring Break, Summer Beach House, Snowed In, all these big events. And so my company started to grow. And so Brian Graydon was running Fox – I mean, was had left Fox – lab and come to MTV. And one of his mandates was to do a lab at MTV. Okay. And so he said to me, would you run this lab while you're still doing all these other shows? And I was like, well, yeah, but I'll need help. And that's when I reached out to John because we become really good friends at this point. And I said, do you want to run this lab with me? And um, he was like, well, I have to quit my job to go do this. Like what kind of commitment is it and everything? And I was like, to be honest, none. Like you, it's a leap of faith. Like you really, you need to believe in, in, the idea that we're going to make great shit together because that's the way my whole career has been. Like, right. just take a chance. And um, he was like, let me think about it. And then, you know, an hour later he called back and he was like, I just quit. Let's do this. And it was great. And so we were able to um, start our company in an unconventional way because I think right now when a lot of people start a company, <clears throat> they either – you know, try to get funding or they, and you have to already pay people. You're already working at a loss. Right. So we were very lucky because we were, we had incomes. MTV was like paying your bills to kind of launch a company. Exactly. And we, and we had offices that they were paying for and all that stuff. So we, we were able to incubate a lot of shows and do the, you know, the Mandy Moore show. And, and we did another dating show called the morning after. And we did, um, uh, you know, so many, we did busted, um, which was an MTV cop show. We did so many things over the years, um, that were amazing, but that's really how our company launched. And then the first non MTV show we did was girls behaving badly for 
Oxygen. Um, and I remember walking into that meeting at Oxygen, and there was a conference room table, still to this day the biggest conference room table I've ever seen okay. because it was in that early 2000, like, warehousey. It was in, like, the meatpacking district of New York, and it was, like, this built out, like, just balls to the wall, insane space and there were all these women around one side of the table and john and i on the other side of the table and one of the women literally said to us why would we ever buy a show from two men and i was like oh my god like are we in like some sort of counter you can never say that the other way around no so i was like i so that's all i needed obviously i have a big mouth so i said well i'll tell you why you should buy a show from two men because the shows you have on like the beehive which i was watching in the hotel while i was getting ready this morning literally the 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 tease out the host said what your man doesn't want you to know about health insurance. I was like, what the fuck kind of tease is that? <laughs> what kind of network are you building? If your man won't tell you about health insurance, leave your man. Like that's, that's – it's a very short segment. It's so bizarre. So they laughed and I said, um, I said we have a tape that we're going to pop in. At this point, we had shot some sample segments with the Girls Behaving Badly cast. This is before Chelsea was part of it. And we would shot some funny pranks. And, um, and so we, we popped it in and a couple of them chuckled. A couple of them, you could tell, were holding it back. Like, they didn't want to laugh. And then a couple of them just didn't think it was funny, and that's fine. And then Jerry Laybourne comes in, who was the president. And she's like, oh, what are you guys doing? And so we said, oh, they said, oh, they just pitched the show. She's like, let me see it. We, we, they rewind the tape and play it for her. Did you already have the title? It was actually Girls Gone Bad. Okay. At the beginning. And um, uh, so we, we, we played it, and Jerry laughed like a like a fucking dude. Like she was like, ha, 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 like Herman Munster. I was like, oh my, like she got it tenfold. She goes, my kids play pranks on us all the time. I love pranks. This is it. And it was, that's all we need. And then everybody was laughing along with her. God bless her. So yeah, right um, now the whole room. Yeah. Laughing. The whole room was that. And there were some yeah. really good people like Jen Cotter Cunningham had come out of there and some right. great people that I got to meet through that process. Um, but it was really funny, but it was, you know, it, it, it that show turned that network around because mm-hmm. um, it, it was the first non- like feminist show or st- would seem like a feminist show, but in reality it was the ultimate fem. It was girls fucking with guys. Completely. So it was like, it, it was really great. But so, um, so that really, that, that, then that took John and I off of just the MTV map right. because when we would go in and pitch shows beyond MTV, people would always be like, Oh, you're those MTV guys. Right. And, and by the way, I kind of loved being called those MTV guys. It was really fun. Sure. Like spring break. It was still a it, renegade network at yes, that time. It was so good. Bob Cusbit and Tony DeSanto and Tony DeBerry and, uh, Mike Powers. It was such a good group of guys, and and a lot of women too that were there. But we had so much fun, and it's, and, and we would use what was great, which you don't have anymore. We would incubate shows off of Spring Break and yes. Summer Beach House, so we would have to fill out you know twenty four hours a day of programming. Right. So we'd be like, oh, like um, it's uh, like what Jimmy Fallon and yes. James Corbin can do yep. now. Yep. You guys were doing that way back then yep. on all the Spring Break. It segments. was so good, and those guys trusted us. And I remember because we would each get a different hour of the like let's say a time slot, and so we would do a show with Anna Lewis and someone else would do this show and someone else would, and then some all or none would get picked up to series like you didn't right. know you know but it was it was like a mill and it was the a, stories of you and john as a duo pitching because yeah. I, I never knew you guys when you were together right now at some point you guys did get like an overall deal or something at burnett productions right no we you were didn't. at their office though yes was so that because we, of fifth grader yes so we okay we'll, we'll get there yeah. but i but you, when you guys started and you guys kind of developed this shtick in the room, I have heard stories from mutual friends of ours oh, no. that are like, Jimmy, you never saw Barry and John when they were together because the first time I met you was when you came right. to Electus, right. and we crossed paths for a few months. Then I go to all three, right. and John's there still running Zoo, and John was one of the first guys to like take me out to lunch and tell me how the place worked, right. and he was like four months five months away from just leaving, right. you know, so he didn't care. You know, he was like that cool senior, you know, and I'm like, the, I'm like the incoming freshman. Right, he takes me out to lunch. It was just the coolest guy. And I was like, Oh my God. Okay. I've now just have worked with Barry and now I'm getting to know John. Right. I can't imagine the energy and the showmanship that went into you guys in a room. Did you guys have a method and a, and a, and a two man routine? Did you guys rehearse or talk no. about who was going to play what role or was it just no. Helter Skelter? It was, no, you know what? We really did. Ha- we were a great team and we still are developing shows together. We were a great team because, um, we had different areas of expertise, but there's no straight man in that duo. No, but at different times, it's, like, Lu- it it's, Lu- it's, Lu- it's Lewis and Lewis. It, it would depend. No, it would depend what the topic was. Cause sometimes, you know, he was Jerry and I was Costanza. And then sometimes I like we, by the way, we, I mean, we laughed so much. So and you again, knew, you knew what, 
for the show and the pitch itself, yes. who was going to have to play what role. Well, also there would be certain pitches that he was more passionate about and right. there would be ones that I was more passionate about. And so whoever was would take lead. Right. Um, you know, uh, we would host run-throughs. We would act out all the show. We, we loved making TV. That was like, that's the key. That honestly, like for anyone listening that wants to be in this business, you have to love what you do. And my dad told me from a very early age, he's just said, figure out what you want to do with your life and then we'll worry about how you get paid for it. It was really <laughs> – and a lot of people don't have that kind of like – I was very lucky that they weren't like, you have to be a doctor or – I mean they would have loved it if I was a doctor or a lawyer. But he was really like – he goes, if, if this is what you want to do, then, then do it and right. do it really well and it will all work out. And it truly is like if you hustle and if you make great shows – and John and I hustled. There was like – there was no doubt about that. If somebody said they – if there was an opportunity, a .0001% chance that somebody might buy our show, but they're in Beijing, we're like, let's go to Beijing. You know, like did nothing got in our way. And it was really fun, and it was a really hard transition because when we sold Zoo to all three, we agreed to stay on and run it for five years as, right. as co-CEOs. Um, and then John stayed on after I left. Right. And so we were like – Oh no, you know, and I actually I, I overlapped for a year because I still consulted for all on our, our shows for a year, so it wasn't like a total break. And then after that year, it was like a total right. break, and it was um, it was really funny. And people in the business were when when I go to pitches alone, they'd be like, "What's the real deal? Did you and John have a fight? What really happened?" And I was like, "No, our kids were playing the other day. We had dinner with the wives. Like we're still best friends, but it was it was definitely." I didn't realize how much of an impact we had as a duo. Yeah. Um, and we used to laugh that we were like the Simpson and Bruckheimer of Schlock. <laughs> <laughs> like we'd roll up. He had the cars. I never, I never, <laughs> yes. he had all the Simpson cars. I never did. Wait, so how did fifth grader come about? So fifth grader is great. We, so John, so. Cause by the way, that was now like the, 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 uh, triangulation yeah. of Burnett, you guys, and somehow Ben Silverman and Revely got involved in yes. the international. So all of those characters came yes. into play through that show. So after um, Girls Behaving Badly launched and we sold a few other shows, we sold a, sh- a cop show to Speed- uh, to um, True TV called Speeders. It went nine seasons. Nobody wow. knows the show existed, but it really was a key transition for them. But so, so, that was, so then we were like starting to branch out. And so now we had shows on probably you know, di- at 10 different cable networks. Wow. And so everything was great. Um, and we had – the desire to get into primetime, who doesn't? But um, we, we didn't have the right show yet. And so um, I got engaged to my wife. He got engaged to his wife a f- few weeks later. Um, then both our wives got pregnant around the same time. And at the end of that year, they both gave birth like two weeks apart. Wow. And so we would come into work and commiserate about having a baby. You know what this is like now and like the unpredictability, not just of the baby, but of your wife and all this stuff. I can't believe you guys lived through that literally at the same time. It was great. It was really funny. That's amazing. It was really – it was a a bonding experience and also um, it was just great because really we got to go to work with our best friends. every Like every day we got to laugh about this shit. And so one day my wife was holding my daughter, Ava, who was a couple months old and – Quite candidly, my wife's really funny, and my wife was like, just so you know, I'm not going to be able to teach this kid anything because I cheated my way through school, and I never told you that. And I was like, just so you know, I cheated my way through school too, so we'll hire a tutor. And she's like, you're making fun, but I'm being serious. I don't remember anything from school. And I said, well, come on. Like, what country gave us the Statue of Liberty? And she's like, I don't know. England? And I was like, oh, my God, you really don't know. So I was like, wait, I'll be right back. And I started. I'm sure your wife loves this. Yeah, I bought a, the, the, she'll kill me. The origin story. But, but she gets credit for it in, in, the, in her, yes. in, you know, yes. perception is everything. So, uh, so I remember my daughter's in her arms crying. And I was like, I got to go write this down. And, um, and I wrote down some ideas. And I just started looking up stuff. And then the next day I went to work and John and I. We're like, oh, no, I know. And my, one of my best friends from growing up, Eric Shapiro, who lived back east still, he got married younger and had kids earlier. So he had like a 10-year-old. And so I was t- when he checked in with me and he's like, how's the baby? How's everything? And I'm like – so I tell him this story. He goes, oh, you think it's hard now? Wait until they do math. Like right now you can lie right. to your kids. Any question a two-year-old asks right. you, you can tell them anything. He goes, but when they're 10 and they come home from school and they act start, like they know everything. They're passing you. Yeah. And then they ask you like – what is it? What, is this an obtuse angle? And you're like, fuck, what's an obtuse angle? He's like, that's what sucks. And so I was like, you know, John and I looked at each other. We're like, this is a show. And we went to a store called um, Lakeshore. Okay. It's like a store where teachers go to buy supplies. Oh, for the uh, yeah, teacher supply store, yeah. So we bought all these textbooks. 
grade school textbooks and Rachel Brill was working with us at the time. Yeah. Uh, and so I remember us, all, we each took a stack of books and we're going through, and we're highlighting and we're reading them out to each other. If you mix red and blue paint together, what color do you get? And we're like, I don't know, put it on the list. And like all this, it was so great. And then we were like, this is, this is a big show. This is, this has potential to go network. If we take it out, it'll land on comedy central. Right. And so not in a bad way, but we wanted to break into network. Yeah. And so Going back to my Sally Jesse days, there was a producer there named Rob Dauber, who was a great guy. And Rob Dauber had gone on to work with Mark Burnett on the Martha Stewart syndicated daytime show. And at the time he was working with Mark, he said to me, Barry, you and Mark would get along so well. I want to introduce you to him. And I was like, to be honest, even though I've name dropped a lot with you today, I'm not a name, like I'm not a star fucker. So I was like, I don't need to just meet Mark Burnett. Right. Like someday I'll have a reason to meet him and right. then I'll take you up on this. And he was like, are you sure? And I said, yeah, like it would just be weird to be like, Barry wants to meet you. Right. So he's like, okay. So cut to, it's about two years later. And I call Rob. You call him that favor. And I said, hey, Rob, remember you said I was, you would introduce me to Mark? And he was like, yeah. And I said, okay, we have a show. We want to pitch him. And Rob, in, tra in traditional, like, because we're also anal and controlling, he was like, well, send me the pitch first. <laughs> like he wanted yeah, to bet sure, it sure. to make sure. Yeah. So he did. And he's like, this is really good. And then he introduced me to Roy Bank and Mark Burnett. Roy, we met first. Roy vetted the show again. was like, this is great. I want to introduce you to Mark. Then we walked down the hall to Mark. And, you know, Mark's relatively quiet, as you described. Like, John and I are a little boisterous. And, and so we're in with Mark, and he's, you know, whispering very softly. Yes. Like, oh, nice to meet you. And how are you? And, and uh, so, so tell me about the show. And at the time, the show was called Take the Money and Run. It wasn't called. I used to oh, interesting. Fifth grader. Uh, uh, because it was like, do you want to gamble it or do you want to take the money and run? And, uh, but it was all fifth grade questions and all that. And so he said, okay, well, so tell me about the show. And so we're telling him about the show and he goes, so you really believe that there are adults with jobs and careers <laughs> who don't know stuff that first graders know? And we said, yep. And he said, I think your idea is flawed. And I said, well, with all due respect, um, it's not put on the share outfit. I said, I... <laughs> Exactly. It was that moment. Right. right. No, well, when you know in your gut, yes. it's like – And they only respect you more for it I most think times because so. they're used to people being nodding yes men. And Mark also surrounded himself with very – Mark's very smart, yeah. but not – you know, he had a lot of MBAs and Ivy Leagues and yeah. he, he like – so I said um, – I said with all due respect, like I'm way more of the average American than most – like I'm telling you, like there's a lot of stuff on here that I didn't know. And he, I said uh, – I think Dave Eilenberg actually was the one who suggested it at the time because he worked at Burnett's company I, and – and I think he went to Harvard or someplace fancy. So um, he said to – Eilenberg said, do you want me to pull a couple of people in and play the game, Mark? And Mark said uh, very like – I wouldn't say it was condescending, but sort of dismissively was like, sure, bring some people in. So I remember he brought in three people, and we gave Mark – Mark said, give me the, the list of questions. So I remember the first one Mark said was to a lawyer that worked at Mark's company. I won't say his name because it'll be embarrassing. But Mark said, when you mix equal amounts of red and blue paint together, what color do you get? It was red and blue, right? Yeah. And the lawyer goes, orange. <laughs> and Mark goes, what? And the guy goes, red and blue. Isn't that orange? And Mark's like, well, and he flips the page and he starts going down the questions to three. And they're get, they got some right. They weren't totally idiots. But they got enough wrong that Mark was like, I think you guys are onto something. And he said – and at the time, his kids were, I think, fourth, fifth, and eighth grade. Right. So this was in his wheelhouse of um, helping kids with their homework and all that stuff. But um, – so Mark was like, all right, let's do this. So we did a deal pretty quickly, and um, we had the 800-pound gorilla of Mark Burnett right. now. So we were able to go into all four networks in two days, pitch all the presidents, which, right. I, you know, to, you yes. can't even do that anymore. No. But, but so we went in. Mark had changed the title to Do You Remember Grade School? Okay. Which I didn't love, but it was better than what we had because he really felt like we had to hit the nail on the head. Right. He was and headed in the right direction. Exactly. Yeah. And so we went in and we played it at each network and we made the executives play the game. And Which some some executives love and some executives some hate. Some executives love, some hate. And I think in this case, I mean, it all worked out. But in hindsight, maybe we shouldn't have because it was highlighting what they don't know. However, um, when we got to Fox. Darnell. Darnell was there with his posse and his harem, har his harem. And he was like, we're going to play as a team. And so we we're like, well, that kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah. But okay. But would, he said, did you play the same questions at the other networks? We said, yes. He said, all right, what, how did they do? You know, he's very competitive. He wanted to know what scores they got. And so we played the game with him and 
Fox did score the highest, although they played as a team. But it was really great. And so then we got offers from NBC and Fox that day. Hmm. And um, literally on a on a white napkin, cocktail napkin like you have in front of you right now, um, Mike and Mark met that night. They wrote down some numbers on a piece of paper, and that was our contract. And Mike said – this was – we had pitched right around Thanksgiving, right before Thanksgiving break. And that cocktail napkin said we needed to – um, be on the air in February. No way. So we're just going on Thanksgiving break. We have to be on the air in February. You know this town's shut down in December. So we literally started calling people saying, like, cancel your vacation plans if you want to be part of the show. Oh, my gosh. And um, – who, who eventually came up with the title? So the next day in the trades, someone called me and they are like, <laughs> I think someone ripped off your show because on the cover of Variety was a picture of Darnell. And it says, Fox picks up, are you smarter than a fifth grader? And they're like, it sounds just like your show. And I'm like, well, no, our show is with Fox. And this is, you know, I, right. I, I remember looking at it and being like, what? He changed the title. And I was like, it's kind of great. And I remember calling Mike. And it was like, it was Darnell. He thought that he knew. Did exactly. Mark know that the title had changed? I think there have been some conversations. But also, it's like Mike's so good at what he does. Oh, like, yeah. There's no, there's no checks and balances needed. It was like, and then I loved that title. Obviously, we all did because it became that question that was challenging you. Right. And, um, and so then we shot the show. You always want the title that becomes the tagline. Right. Of the show. It was amazing. And I remember two weeks after the show premiered, we were in Vegas, John and I. Which our Vegas stories are, are epic and legendary <laughs> in and of themselves. But we were sitting at a blackjack table, and the woman next to me thought she had 21, but she had 22. But she thought she had 21. And she was like, yes! And the blackjack dealer said, not knowing who we were, the blackjack dealer said, she's not smarter than a fifth grader. And we were like, yes! We've and made it, was it. Just, it was like, it, it was, you know, the show, it took off, took on a life of its own. But it really was the perfect team. And that's what I think throughout my career has really been. Um, strategic alliances really with the right people and they weren't strategic from the onset it was just luck that brought me and these people together because if we didn't have mark and we didn't have mike and we didn't have foxworthy i don't think the show would have been the same yeah you know know? i like to always tell people that the thing i do like about our business is a lot of times it can be a meritocracy where i don't even know what that means uh meaning that the best idea wins yes right uh but a lot of the times as well, it's not always the idea. It's, oh, yeah. it's who's pitching it. Yep. And, and, pa- and you cannot underestimate the value of just packaging and spending four more months yeah. holding on to that idea and just trying to put the added pieces together before you take it out. I think sometimes people move too quickly. Yep. And if they thought, look, I, I might take a little bit less of ownership, but I'm going to make that much more yep. because of the package I'm putting together. Yep. And by the way, it's funny because I'm speaking on a panel today about the development, mm-hmm. the deal of development or something. And in the pre-interview, he was asking me – you know, do you think development deals are going fast? You know, it's go, you're spending more time in development, less time. And I was like, to be honest, we have a game show called Winsanity that premieres tonight on GSN, coincidentally. But it was in development for two years. Well, you know Winsanity from Electus. Chachi Sr. Right? and Dave Knoll. And Where Yoshi. you guys did four pilots. Yeah. So we took those tapes into GSN. So they'd already seen tape. And we were still in development for a year and a half. Unbelievable. And I remember Jen Freeman, who is my development angel she's the best jen freeman's the executive from gsn in new york and she called me and she said barry i know you're getting fed up because we had done i'm not joking a dozen conference room run-throughs for them right like making the most minor tweaks to the game but that's what they do they know game and i i was starting to get annoyed you know chris grant was just like well, let's go to series what's going on what's going on let's at least do a real pilot so i could sell it internationally like just we got to kick this up a notch and then jen called me and she said just trust me you might have to do a couple of more of these, but it'll be worth it. And so I went to Chris and I said, look, I, she's never steered me wrong. Right. Worst thing that happens, we waste a little bit of time. Right. It's not costing us any money. and It's my time, not yours. Let's, let me do it. And he was like, fine. We did two more and um, they picked us up for 40 episodes. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, right? So I feel like doing that extra legwork – is worth it. So whether it means chasing down the right talent, like we have a new show with your wife at ABC with Steve Harvey, um, getting Steve Harvey attached to that show made that show a better show. Huge. Um, so that that we're shooting in October, but it is about it's doing that work on the front. And I think especially at a conference like Real Screen, where you see so many people running around, like I got an idea, I got an everyone's got an idea. Right. An idea is worthless. And I I honestly don't not in a snotty way, but I don't take pitches of someone who just has an idea. Mm-hmm. You need to either have some type of IP, it's a book, it's a website, it's something attached. You need to have a talent. You need to have the ability to make the show 
because I learned early on I did option ideas from other people who were good ideas people, but they couldn't make the show. And so it's ironic it all comes full circle because the reason why I'm in the position now that I am at MGM is because I know how to make the show and not just sell it and not just create it. And so so even now when I have someone in a position working on a show who's not doing their best, I'm able to at least have a dialogue with them about how to – how to maybe give them some advice that can help them or get the right answers and information from them to fix the problem because it might not be them. It might be right. the machinery. It might be the support team. It might be the host. You know, it might be – you don't know where it's coming from. And so I think to be able to troubleshoot is really 90% of a good producer's job because you can only tee it up so much. Right. And then it's like action and in those moments and in the, the unscripted world, the way we do it, it's like – a lot of run and gunning. A lot of look. We do shows differently, also, where we don't want we don't overproduce it. We really try not to. We right. want it, if it's supposed to be real, let it be real. And so you don't do, we don't do um, second and third takes with stuff that doesn't need it. Like I like it feeling more authentic. And I think that um, our business right took this turn over the last couple of years where everything became so produced yep. that the viewers were kind of like, I'm not into it anymore. Yeah. You know, and I think there's this gray area, like the Real Housewives or some of those franchises, where it's like it's not the producers, it's the actual cast itself that brings it. Like they yeah. know to be on TV, they have to pick a fight and they drink just enough to have that fight. Well, I was talking about how this generation of reality talent are the first generation oh, yeah. that right. was brought up yeah. on reality TV. Totally. Yeah, it's why every real world person now knows they are just checking a box right. of what the casting directors are looking for. <laughs> right. And right. they now know what's going to make the headlines on Twitter for them to be a notable cast member. Right. They know that it's good for them to find beef with somebody on that cast and get into a fight because right. they know they're going to have to create a story and that'll last four episodes. And I think there's that type. And then there's also the other type that thinks they're going to outsmart the system. Yeah. They're going to be the one to come off looking like an angel or they're going to be the one to come out with a book deal or they're going to be – and they – and it that one right. always gets derailed. Yeah, yeah. Either you get kicked off the show because you're boring yeah. or you get sucked into something when you least expect it and you're the least prepared for it because you thought, I'm not going to let anyone get under my skin. Well, the truth is it happens to all of us. Someone steals your parking spot. You're like, fuck you. Like it <laughs> happened and you're like, oh my god, did I just give that lady the finger for taking my parking spot? So if it happens and you're not under the microscope and you think you're going to control it under the microscope – you're not. Right. And so I think it's really um, – it's been really interesting. But I think like Bravo has an amazing machine going because they're just like – they're at the point now where they're like, if you don't if you don't entertain us this season, you're not on next season. Like, yeah. you know, and that's – I think set, that, you know, changes the dynamic of what we do because we used to be slaves to our cast where they could hold us up for more money and all that right. kind of stuff. So I think that is um, – makes it more fun for everyone. Finally, before you go, yes. have you spoken with Mark about Trump? And if you have – can you at least give me some insight into Mark's feelings on Trump getting the nomination for the Republican Party? You know what? I had a very limited conversation, and I'm trying to think of – um, well, no, because it related to The Apprentice, right? So I just saw the new season of The Apprentice right. with Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger. Unbelievable. It's awesome. Unbelievable. It's so funny. He gets so annoyed. Like talking about getting sucked in. Here's this guy. Like he doesn't need this grief. Trump never really got annoyed with people the same way on the – like he would just kick you off. He was dismissive. But like Schwarzenegger is – it's – anyway, it's so good. So we did have a conversation off of that because also um, in other territories that are airing the Trump seasons of Apprentice in other countries, um, it's sort of interesting because they're they're like say two seasons behind. Mm. So are they going to continue airing Trump? And what's it going to be like if Trump is president? And like our president is now on this reality show that's airing in other countries. It's a little bizarre that like the president of our country is picking on Khloe Kardashian for a challenge that she didn't deliver on. Like I don't – so we we talked about it in that context. Um, But I am having dinner with him in Roma tonight, and I imagine it might come up. But um, I feel like the biggest name dropper on this thing because it's like such a condensed amount of celebrity stories in one thing. So if I come off like a douchebag, just please edit it because I just feel like – but but no. So I haven't had any meaningful conversation about Trump, but I think it would be hard for me to have a proper meaningful conversation about Trump. Another Uh, another thing you can bring up at dinner tonight. Yeah. Uh, Me and Mark, we share a birthday. Oh. I told him this years ago. He when is it? He didn't seem very impressed. No, well, it's just a random birthday. July 17th. Yeah, and I'm July 17th. And, and a we couple share, of decades apart. And we share that birthday with David Hasselhoff. Oh, that's pretty good. And I did tell David Hasselhoff this at an NBC Upfront years ago. And he was very excited to share in the fact that we were He was eating buddies. a hamburger off the floor at the time. <laughs> I think he was sweeping up after the party. 
Uh, Barry Posnick, thanks for joining me, man. This is so fun. Appreciate it. Thank you.